0: I'm Scarlett Russell, entertainment editor for the Sunday Times Style, and this is Secrets of the Side Hustle, your go-to podcast to find out what it really takes to turn your passion into your career. Each episode we hear from inspiring female founders who give us the lowdown on how they turn their side hustle into a thriving business. From baking for the stars to sex tech, disrupting the fast fashion industry and more. In this show, we get the ins and outs and ups and downs of setting up your own company whilst pocketing nuggets of advice along the way. On this episode, I'm joined by Chloe McIntosh, one of the founders of made.com, whose latest venture isn't for the faint-hearted. Karma is a sex education and training app promising to improve your wellness, physical and mental well-being via your sex life. Karma launched in 2019 as Chloe's side hustle while she was working as the Chief Creative Officer for Soho House. Whether it's tips on sex positions or full-on couples counselling, Karma is on a mission to transform the sex tech space. And with 200,000 users and 16 major investors, it might just be onto something. I'm so excited to chat to Chloe about Karma and hear her unique and very impressive career story. Welcome to Secrets of the Side Hustle, Chloe. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. We've got loads to cover, so I'm going to dive right in. You're a proper entrepreneur. You've started loads of businesses, but you are mainly here to talk
1: about your latest venture, Karma. What is it? Who is it for? How does it work? So Karma at the moment is an app that allows you to connect to your sexuality and learn more about your body. So we put together video tutorials that actually are targeting all of the questions that people are looking for that they're not getting proper answers for. And in the field of sexuality, there is a lot of confusion. There's a lot of contradiction. And when you look for information, especially on the Internet, it's actually really hard to get to the truth. There's also been very little amount of research in pleasure in general. So a lot of the learnings come from working with practitioners and coaches who have been working with client hands-on for all their career. And together we create practices such as how to breathe during sex, how to use your voice during sex, how to use your finger, how to use your body for pleasure. Quite literally a hands-on approach. <laughs> it's like sex education for adults, is it? Yes. So actually it starts with teenage years. I feel that if we start there, then we would avoid a lot of the problems that come later because of of like education and because of the kind of patterns that we get used to if we don't engage with sexuality in a healthy way. So I have two teenage boys, you know, and, and this has been a huge part of the inspiration for creating practical tips and practical skill videos that they can apply immediately that are really relevant for people that are, are looking for simple things initially. And then we have customers that are all the way to 70 year olds. Um, we have a lot of people in their 50s. Our strongest cohort is the 25 to 35. So someone who uh, has a bit of experience with sex and is starting to think, I want to go deeper. I'm curious about this area and I want to find a resource and a modality to help me, you know, go deeper in the learning and understanding of sex and also intimacy. You know, it's not just sexuality. It's also the quality and the benefits of good intimacy between relationships. For listeners that maybe
0: haven't caught on yet, you are French. You've been here, though, since 1998 in the UK. Do you think, though, French women are more comfortable speaking openly about sex than British women? Because I still feel it is something of a taboo over here. Not that that's right, but that is still the case, I think, a lot of the time. Mm,
1: So what's similar is that I grew up in a family with a single mother and a a sister, so three women. My mom never had a partner, so I was not exposed to any intimacy or sexuality in all of my upbringing, and it was never discussed with me. There was no sexual energy in my house. There was no encouragement. There was no openness around this conversation. So that's true anywhere. You know, the fact that you don't have that conversation at home. A society, however, does not consider sex to be its own thing, separate from our life that we're not supposed to talk about. People do talk about sexuality more openly. They talk about relationships, sexual relationship. For a long time in France, having multiple partners or going outside of your relationship has been something that's quite part of the culture and more openly so, you know, because it's part of the culture here. It's just not open. That's really the difference. Mm. So as you say, I think there is a cultural heritage towards being a little bit more comfortable. I'm very comfortable talking about it. I could talk to you about cooking or sex or anything else. For me, it's the same. It's been so interesting
0: hearing about the drive behind Karma and Chloe's passion for educating others on sexual well-being and intimacy. I wanted to know more about Karma's business model and how Chloe generates money.
1: These first couple of years have been about building a free platform for all and analyzing the data and understanding what people really want and how much they can do. And now in a couple of months, we're launching coaching programs. So Kama is turning really into giving people a very clear path of growth in the area that they are most concerned with almost curious about And so kind of counseling therapy no so there will be group coaching so you'll be joining for example a female program that will be focused on the different types of orgasms and this will be around really making the person realize day by day through reading little piece of information and also practicing once a week how they can develop and open their body towards other experience than the one that they know and just really be guided so we drip feed information into the app every day you get a piece of advice from the coach and the coach is a real person and you're part of a group so you have your own commitment to something you want you have the coach support and then you have this community this group around you that is going to help you realize that where you think your problem is unique and that you may not be normal which is always what happens people come to us and say this and this and this, is it normal? right because we don't know that other people experiencing exactly the same thing as we do and so having a group support opens the conversation and also allowed for that you know co-learning but of course it's on an app so it's anonymous people are not showing their face or their name I was going to
0: ask about that right so it is all anonymous because that's a lot for someone Absolutely. who might not want to know and these are the first stepping stone into making money I'm guessing how much should the course is going to be roughly
1: we haven't quite yet decided on the pricing but courses which are, I would say, comparable to what we do today are between $500 and $1,000 for five, six weeks, let's say. So the market today is very paralyzed towards uh, specialized courses, which are actually very hard to find if you're looking for them on the internet, which are created by experts who put together this course and then sell it in a very kind of you know simple way. What we want to bring is this coaching experience as well. So it's not just a course where you can watch evergreen content, but it's that kind of daily reminder of little habits and little things you can change. Because when it comes to, you know, changing patterns, as we know now from neuroscience research, it's the repetition and the intention towards the change that makes the change. And you say 500 to 1,000, you mean pounds, not dollars?
0: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Okay because it's, it's a British... So.
1: Well, we our strongest is in the US. So is it global, the yeah, app? Yeah, totally global. You can get, download it from anywhere
0: in the world. Anywhere. Even though it was a startup here in the UK, you have more customers in the US. That's so interesting.
1: So when I started raising money for Kama, I started actually talking to European investors and European VCs. And... I had a very awkward experience. I could not really deliver the message. There was a lot of embarrassment and that was happening because I was suddenly pitching a sex business in the boardroom, which, you know, and then I thought, that's very interesting because in my view, the European customer is a more open-minded customer than a U.S. customer. But what I realized is when it comes to VC, the VCs in the U.S., venture capitalists, are much more forward-thinking, much more risk-taking, and much more interesting in novelty Ooh. than the traditional VCs in Europe who often come from traditional banking and uh, not necessarily from entrepreneurial background. And so I realized that actually it's in the States that I should be raising the money for this business. So I raised $4 million in the U.S. mostly from very established US VCs in New York and San Francisco. And then I came back and then I started a business here and the company, you know, is mostly a UK company, but the audience has been spread around the world. It's really interesting about the investments. You've got sixteen investors
0: and you only started the business December twenty nineteen. Mm-hmm. And then very quickly after that, of course, we went into lockdown. So you'd only started gathering the funds and then we were in lockdown. How did the business develop through Mm. those
1: tricky COVID (laughs) pandemic times? So the the thing that's important about the 16 investors is to understand that when you structure a first round, a pre-product seed round, which is when you don't have a product yet, which is when I raise money, you need to have a mix of investors. Some of them are there to give you the capital, as a main mass and they're there also for advice and then you have a series of angels angels are potential VC within a company but they invest on a personal level and they often bring the advisory aspect of what comes with a little bit of money so they invest a lot less but they have a lot of value when it comes to their network their idea a lot of them are ex-entrepreneurs so you can tap into them a lot more for advice and recommendations when you more institutional investors are there to drive your business forward Forward, but they're not always necessary. or don't have the time to advise. So that's why you end up sometimes with like a, a big cap table with different types of people on it. It's more better when it comes to investors because part of me when you were saying that is thinking what if all their
0: advice is clashing? What if you're overwhelmed so you've got too many opinions? How do you know if you should have a couple of really strong investors or like in your case, 16 who are all bringing something to the table?
1: Yeah, so three investors represent 90% of the capital. Right. So you focus the majority of your capital amongst a small group of people, and then you keep a small amount of the capital for lots of advisors. And in that case, you can have as many as you want. They're a mini community, a mini uh, investors network that is always going to be talking about your business positively. They're always going to send you recommendation. If they hear of a collaboration or partnership, they're going to be thinking, I'm going to call Chloe about this. That's great for Kama. So actually, it doesn't really matter how big that pool is as long as, when it comes to your board meeting and your reporting, you're dealing with a small number of people who are all aligned, who enjoy also working together, which is what I have. You know, I have a small pool of investors that I have calls every month with. And then ad hoc, I will call the other people and ask their advice. Talking about your teams,
0: I want to point out you've got a lot of people working for you, all women, I think, which is fantastic. And then some experts, which are mainly all women. So presumably a lot of that money goes towards paying them Mm -hmm. for their expert advice. How do those experts come into karma? Why do you need them? Why is that so important?
1: So it's really important for me when I look at my career, you know, I changed direction a lot. I went into areas of, uh, of business that I knew nothing about. I was an architect to start with. And then I, I moved into tech, by a little bit by accident, find myself building a first startup, then went into building made, which was furniture. Then I went into investment and joined a couple of firms, VC firm to invest. Then I joined Saw House, nothing to do with furniture. And then after that, I started something in the sex industry. I like to go in businesses and discipline that I don't know well, so I need experts. What I do is I'm the bridge between Content that's out there that's good, that's not visible, that's not accessible, and the practicality of delivering this to the mass audience. I'm I'm really interested in building businesses for the masses. I truly believe that when the masses upgrade, then everyone gets better. Society improves. So I did it with architecture. I did it with, you know, somehow furniture, you know, bettering people's everyday life with just better design and that's accessible. And now with sexuality, I really believe that one of the best ways that we can feel better in our head and also alleviate part of the mental health epidemic that's happening, where the number one reason people come to us is because they're stuck in their head. Chloe certainly knows how to kickstart a successful business.
0: I asked her, aside from her meetings with venture capitalists, what her role within the company looks like and why.
1: I never really wanted to be a CEO. I was desperately trying to find a co-founder and one of the reasons why I didn't start the business earlier because I started researching it almost 15 years ago when I was pregnant with my first son uh, is because I I like to lead, yes, but I like to co-create more. I think I thrive when I'm collaborating with people. It just triggers much more of my creativity. And so the idea of being a CEO and what I have had experience of other CEOs is that the more senior you are, the less you do that you love. And this is true for many entrepreneurs that I meet. Mm-hmm. You know, they start a business because they love it. And then by the time it's been, you know, successful a little bit, they're no longer doing any of the mm-hmm. things they've always loved and the reason that they're there. So I've been really trying to, find a way to continue to do the things that I love and collaborating with those experts you mentioned and those practitioners and, you know, everything that comes out in the app is something that I have experienced. I'm testing everything that we teach people. I'm going through the process myself and that comes from all these different expertise because I don't have the expertise. I'm just one of you, a little bit more ahead. But you are the CEO, Yes, because I started the business because I had this intention. I believed in it mm-hmm. and I had to drive it. And in a sense, I'm the best person to be the CEO now. But I've actually hired a co-CEO already. OK. One of my great team members, who is a data scientist, actually, has just joined me as CEO because I want to start going back into doing more of the content creation and the, the co-creating with with the experts. You were working
0: as the creative content officer at Soho House Group when you launched Karma at the end of 2019.
1: 19. Tell me briefly what that job entailed. Yeah, so actually the founder of uh, Sohouse House contacted me because they were launching Soho Home. So Home is their homeware brand. You know, they've been building those amazing clubs for so long and people are always asking them, oh, where can I get this chair and where can I get this lab? So Nick Jones, the founder, thought, oh, well, why don't we just create a range that will give people access to those products? And they had never done retail before in this way. So knowing my background from Made, I came in to actually advise on that. And then I became their chief creative officer for the group, really with the intention to look at the digital opportunity for So House, because as, as it's. When I was there, unless you are there at the same time as I am, I don't get to connect with the community. You know that is the Sohas community, which is this really big, valuable group of people that's been curated. So I actually worked in this environment as a way to try and help them do this uh, digital transformation. And the main intention, actually, for me going back into a larger company was that as an entrepreneur, I think there is sometimes, you know, something that I find a little bit difficult is that people say, oh, I will never be able to work for someone else. I think it's really important to work for someone else. I think it's really important to be an employee to be reminded of what it's like to be an employee and what it's like to be part of a culture that either you agree with or some of the things you don't and and how do you report into people and work laterally Mm -hmm. with others, uh, which you never get to do when you are a co-founder or founder, uh, you know, CEO. So it was a big lesson to remind myself of all this before I started my business. So I was a little bit more equipped with the right values and experience after doing all this, you know, freestyling of business that I did through MADE where, you know, we were allowed to do a lot more of the things the way we wanted to. Tell me about the side hustle that you'd, you
0: know, you were working full time at Soho House, but you were launching Karma on the side. You are someone who already has a wealth of experience in business. You knew what you were doing, but how did you make that side hustle work? I mean, you're still a busy woman with two kids. How did you juggle it all?
1: I think it's the drive, you know. For the first time, I connected to something that was mission-driven. Mission-driven means it's not about you. You know, it really isn't about you. It's about uh, a mission and that is beneficial for many more people. It can be a small group, but in this case, it's a a large uh, portion of the population. And mission-driven means that you won't make a decision based on your career or how successful you're going to be or money or commercial output. You're actually going to be thinking of what is really needed for things to change positively and for that to have a long-term impact that will change society ultimately. So I never really had that before. You know, I was kind of a passionate professional and I love what I did and I put a lot of energy in everything that I did. and I was very driven, but I never experienced what it's like to work within an environment that is just part of our everyday life. It's not a job. It is who we are. You know what I'm doing. So it changed the dynamic and it meant that my motivation you know was very driven. To be honest I left Soul House as soon as I knew I could raise money. I had waited uh, 15 years for the right time to go and raise money. It was not possible to raise money for sex business all that time ago. Uh, changed three four years ago when sexual wellness became an actual investment category within wellness which wasn't the case before. And in investment if you don't have a category of investment you can't actually get capital because the category defines the market size, therefore defines the opportunity, therefore defines the exit. If you don't know what category you belong to, you can't raise money. So when sexual wellness became an officially a category and people started to raise money for sexual wellness, that's when I decided to leave Soul House and go raise money, and that's what I did. How many users do you have on Karma right now? We've had almost two hundred thousand downloads. How did you initially get the word out about it and how are you still promoting it now? To be honest, it's been mostly the support of people who have recognised the benefits of what we're trying to do. And by this, I mean journalists and, you know, people who write content. We've had really a lot of press. It's interesting because it's a subject we talk about a lot in our society. We seem to be very focused on it, yet it's very hard to find an intelligent conversation anywhere. You know you, you don't really read a lot of really mm-hmm. great content you, you hear stories and that person did this and you know there's a little bit but there's very little good content so when you can provide with a lot of substance and a lot of practical tips and a lot of references and a lot of data then of course people want that story and they want to bring that up because they know sex sales. They know people read this. I always hear, you know, our sex content is what gets the most click. So people are curious. And so it's never, it's never been a, a hard sell for me, you know. And I think that I understand press very well. I've always done my own PR. at admit I did all my own PR. We did everything in-house. And it's all about genuine stories, I think. It's all about really being able to get across something that is going to touch people, where they're going to be able to Assimilate and relate and give them not too much information so we really try to simplify things a lot so the press has been big support and then organic growth people just talking to each other which is not obvious because if you think about organic growth, which is when people just word of mouth. Sex isn't something we talk about a lot, so it's not as easy to say, oh, I've just downloaded this sex app and you should download it. But it so happened that people did that. A lot of people said, this is the first time I'm having a conversation with my husband. This Mm. is the first time I can actually give my son a piece of advice. So it's allowed us to create a conversation, and that conversation is what created initially the momentum around getting more customers. You're
0: listening to Secrets of the Side Hustle with Scarlett Russell. There'll be more secrets coming up just after this. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com/acast. Welcome back to Secrets of the Side Hustle with Scarlett Russell. Let's jump back into where we left off. Let's go back to your early life. You moved to the UK in 1998 to be an
1: architect. How did that go? Well, I was studying in France at the Beaux-Arts to be an architect. Architecture is a really long training in France, seven years to get a diploma. I think two-thirds into the training, I was really keen to have an experience abroad. So I asked people in the school if they knew anyone. And they said, look, you know, go to Foster's, Norman Foster's in London. They hire a lot of interns during the summer. It's not guaranteed, but just, you know, kind of show up. So I had a contact there and I went there and I got the job for the summer. And I was there just for two months. How old were you at this time? Uh, 23. Okay. And then I stayed for 25 years. I fell in love with London. I fell in love with the freedom and the acceptance, uh, the lack of judgment. You know, I was a Parisian girl, educated in a very particular way with a lot of invisible construct, uh, which I really realized in the UK, you know, there may be a taboo around sex and yet people are not great maybe at expressing emotions. But when it comes to being who you are, no one is going to give you slack for that. And that was a big change in the way that I could relate to myself. You came to co-found made.com,
0: mm-hmm. which is one of the biggest furniture outlets that we've that we've got out here and I believe one of the fastest growing UK startups
1: it was at the time you know we again timing is so important with these kind of things with a uh, startup industry it's really interesting which is why I waited for that one for that long knowing the importance of not coming at a wrong time so when we came out with made in 2010 the furniture industry was kind of stale it was one of the areas of business on the internet that hadn't really benefited much from the internet people had put their catalog online but they there was no really upsides. We really wanted to disrupt that. And when Brent Halberman and I, you know, started to discuss this, and then we also had a couple of the co-founders join the business. I was kind of put together in a team that I hadn't really necessarily chose. It was a big learning curve for me, you know, to co-found a business. I had never done that before. I had never led any business in the past. I had never done any of the things I did for Made.com. And so it was a lucky, I would say, set of circumstances that gave us this opportunity to start a business because we thought about the idea and we knew enough about how to do an internet business. We had some good financial support and very quickly. Quickly, The press, again, loved it. This idea that someone would disrupt such a difficult industry, I think in retail, it's the hardest. You know, when you buy a sofa, you consider that purchase usually with more than one person. It's quite a high price point. It needs to be delivered. It's hard to return. It's very costly, you know, it's a terrible, you know, difficult process to disrupt. So when we managed to do that, there was a clear opportunity for us. You know, we were able to deliver a great story and we had a very different looking business. We were talking about cutting the middleman and allowing people to get better for their money, which is all the things that at the time, you know, through all the supply chain kind of disruption that was happening in the retail industry, just found a real place you know it just we became a very visible player very quickly in an industry where everyone was 20 years old it sounds like you really made your mark on this huge huge company you're still involved in made i'm not directly involved you know i stepped down in 2015 okay and then my two other co-founders stepped down a year later you know it's a company that is more than 200 employees Uh, when you start a business as an entrepreneur you have certain qualities that are unique that allow you to start a business but when the business becomes of certain size very often you're just not that person and for me i think i was the first one in the team to realize that i don't want to be managing agencies i want to create mm-hmm. you know i ended up having creative agencies everywhere and just basically commissioning them to do work and i was no longer doing my creative work so i thought you know, let's do something else and go back to doing small businesses. You've got so much
0: experience, Chloe. What do you wish every woman knew about business?
1: Uh, It's very hard because in my case, I had a good track record. So raising capital, you know, was easier than it is if you're a first time entrepreneur. It's very hard to raise money. Uh, It's very hard to convince people who are constantly exposed to lots of ideas and other people that have a better track record to just go and suddenly raise money, even if your idea is very good, because there's a lot of ideas in this world. You know, everyone is an entrepreneur these days. Everyone has a business idea. So the main thing is to, I think, to think small and to really solve a problem. Very, very often in business, we focus on the solution. Very quickly, we solution-driven. But we forget that 90% of business is solving a problem. And so it's really going back to all the time, what problem are we trying to solve really? For example, with furniture, are we solving small spaces? Are we uh, uh, solving adaptability? What really do people really want that needs to translate in the product so that we're really going to be standing out with what we create? Because it's a competitive world out there. You said in 2015, I have a Joan of Arc
0: approach to life. Anything you want, you have to fight for. Strong young females from Antigone to Anne Frank have always inspired me and been a big part of how I think.
1: Love so that. <laughs> what do you That's mean so by that? It's funny because I think completely differently now. <sighs> How? Completely Wait? differently. In 2015, I was just on the tail of a long, you know, period of my life and career where if you don't suffer, you don't grow. The no pain, no gain motto. I was very driven by, you know, just suffering through to grow and to expand and to learn. And since I've been in the pleasure business, <laughs> I've realized that actually... Only a Frenchwoman can say that with such confidence since I've been in the pleasure business. <laughs> I've realized that actually it's okay to suffer once in a while. And yes, sometimes you do have to fight some battles, but it's not sustainable. You know, I came out of maid, I was broken. I had a complete breakdown. My marriage collapsed. I realized that I had completely mis understood how to balance my life. And that was mostly because I was driven by also an investment and industry mentality, such as VC industry that drives for growth, that drives for higher and higher valuation, because that's how their value grow, is when your valuation increases, which is what the value of your business is. And actually, what I want to go back to now is a traditional business that makes money. I want to go into one of those old school business, which drives profit and that profit is redistributed to the people that build a business and not focused on the outcome of an exit that's projected by investors whose business is money. Was it the demands of work and personal life? What was happening and how did you get out of that? So I think partially it was the stress of building a business and it's taxing. And sh- we should not underestimate how taxing it is. I also had quite young boys when I started MAID, and they were three and five. I had to travel to um, far countries very, very regularly, which at the same time, again, I was driven, excited. The opportunity was fascinating. i had never tried anything so adventurous in business before, and we were in a really good structure in a sense. But the relationship between myself and my co-founder was really difficult in the sense that we didn't know each other that well, and we had to do, to adapt. And I think there's a big lack in business. And that's something that I would love to actually bring into corporation, is that relationship in business is as important as relationship in your private life. You know, I was spending many more hours with my co-founders than I did with my husband. And that's okay for a time. But if that relationship isn't enriching isn't you know making you feel good and is challenging you in a way that actually gives you insecurities about what's possible then have a time you kind of lose a little bit of grip and because the business is growing so exponentially there was no time to reflect there was no pause you know sometimes you just need to actually stop and take a moment and I realized that now my view of things is that life is cyclic. It's it's, it's 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 It goes and comes back like the seasons. Everything in our world is cyclic. But yet we look at business in a linear way. We think it's only going to get better and stronger and faster and higher. And that is driving us to the ground because we're not designed that way. We have good times and bad times, you know, in everything that we do. And that should be something that's really recognized and accepted. And even though... A lot of business people tell you failures, they don't really want you to fail, Mm. (laughs) you know. It's okay if you fail and you learn, yeah, good, but just don't fail for real. So you don't really have a chance to truly fail and you know that you're under that kind of pressure. So you have your own pressure you have your family environment. You have the pressure of the business. You have the pressure of the investors. Mm. You have the pressure of your team. And then you have the pressure of these customers who expect your product to be delivered and your service to be what they want. And so overall, it's just a lot to, to carry. You know, I would say it's an equation that just ends up being a lot to manage for people who have never had training in management. You know, I, I didn't have a practice, a self-care practice at the time. I didn't even know what self-care was I didn't understand how to regulate my life the way I do now you know now I'm bulletproof <laughs> what? really totally it... bulletproof okay so how did you get to be bulletproof what's the secret the balance me how I feel is more important than anyone else in the sense that unless I'm stable there I can't do my work I can't look after my children I can't be a good partner I need to look after myself And if something isn't quite right if I feel stressed I need to stop And I need to do something that's going to help me regulate my nervous system, put myself back into a good place so that I can continue to absorb potentially more stress, potentially just more workload. It has been a real
0: pleasure getting to know our female founder on this week's Secrets of the Side Hustle. But I want to go just that little bit further and find out something about them or their business that isn't common knowledge.
1: It's time for Best Kept secrets. So I don't know if I'm a good boss. You'll have to ask uh, people who work for me uh, or with me. Uh, I think I have some, you know, good leadership quality. I have a very strong vision. And I think I can really enthuse people around a project and a direction. And I'm very clear what we're trying to do. But I'm not the best manager. You know, I I find it difficult to... um, spend a lot of time with individuals and, you know, grow them individually, as well as running the business every day and making decisions. It's something that is challenging that I'm learning, that I'm also training myself around. And I'm very transparent with my employees that that's not my expertise Mm -hmm. and that they need to tell me when something isn't right. And so the way I facilitate this is by creating a space where they can tell me everything that's not working you know, completely openly, because I'm really receptive to criticism, like I actually want to know what to change. I have no fear of the things which don't work, Uh, I'm not attached to not being the perfect boss at all, I much rather understand how I can get better Mm -hmm. by making it possible for people to share. So, you know, that's how I, I facilitate my evolving is by allowing for people to be able to be honest with what they need. It's
0: almost time to say goodbye to our female founder this week. But before we do, let's have one more moment of inspiration with our quote for quote, where we share uplifting quotes with the hope to motivate you to pursue what you're passionate about. I'm gonna share with you an inspirational quote from a famous woman that we are constantly inspired by. This week it's Cher, the one and only Cher, but this is such a great quote. She says, It's just learning not to take the first no. And if you can't go straight ahead, you go around the corner.
1: I mean, I relate to it. I intend to, as I said earlier in my career, I would go straight through. And now I have a slightly more of a dance around getting what I need. You know, I'm a little bit less, I think, front fronting. Uh, So I relate to this. I think it requires quite a bit of maturity to get there.
0: Yeah, and I think it's saying that you can't. It's not always going to be the the straight road ahead. Things aren't going to go exactly as you planned. That's very true. You're gonna. You might reach the destination, but the journey is going to be a little different. You might need to go another way in order to get there. Have you got a quote, Chloe, that you are going to share with me?
1: Yeah. So actually, the in in my career, I've had different quotes that led you know my thinking and direction because I've it's changed a lot. And lately, I feel that the one that resonates with me the most is a Whitty Allen. Quote Quote that says 80% of life is showing up and i can't tell you how many times i realize how true it is you know especially when we have so much distraction you know the social media and so much talking and in my field in the sex space people talk mm. a lot and they disagree about things which, honestly, we should all agree on. And they still find way to create polemic in a field where we should all agree that what we need is better education and that pleasure is a great thing. And yet it's not how it is. You know, there's a lot of political debates in, in the space of sex. So for me, it's about showing up and actually doing something and not talking and demonstrating that it's through action that we make change much more than through talking about it. My last
0: question for you, Chloe your favourite life lesson you would like to pass on to anyone thinking about starting a side hustle?
1: Yeah, so I would say watch out for the experts in the industry where you are wanting to disrupt because knowledge is a curse when you want to do things differently. Not knowing could be you know the solution initially for you uh, tapping into how to make something better and if you know too much about what's already there it makes it very hard to go around the current process so involve experts later in the process really think of it as a customer what you need what would you like and that is not often what the experts will tell you they will tell you like they did at made you will never be able to sell a sofa online So what I did for two years obsessively was to design sofas and make sure we could sell sofas online and it became our best-selling category. So they almost point you exactly where we need to start. When they say you can't do that, that's exactly where you should go. Chloe, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. I feel
0: like I've got so many nuggets of information and advice there and your story is just completely fascinating.
1: Oh, thank you I so much. I love it.
0: Thank you so much. Thank Good you. luck with Karma. I can't wait to see how the app progresses over the next few years. We'll all be keeping an eye on it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks. You've been listening to Secrets of the Side Hustle with Scarlett Russell and our fantastic female founder this week, Chloe McIntosh. The series producer is Anya Pierce. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not follow the podcast so that you never miss an episode? And you can listen back to all our previous episodes on the free Times Radio app, or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. I'll be back with more Secrets of the Side Hustle next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much.